0: Before we get going with today's podcast, I want to remind you about a great opportunity to learn football at Lawrence First and Goal Coaches Clinic. The clinic is to benefit pediatric brain tumor research, as well as cancer services. And the lineup, as I mentioned, is an incredible one, 160 speakers. And right now you can get the ticket to that clinic, $49 for an individual for a staff of five, so $30 a coach there, but you need to act now. That expires once it hits 2021 here, midnight on Friday. Again, check it out at lfgf.coachesclinic.com. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about getting buy-in in your position room. We'll focus specifically on cornerback press technique and joining us today is a guy with a lot of titles, the cornerbacks, special teams coordinator, defensive pass game coordinator, and defensive recruiting coordinator at Sam Houston State, Gary McGraw. Coach McGraw, great to have you here today.
1: I appreciate it. Love, love that you are putting together this platform for, for coaches to, you know, be able to express their experience and and not only this pandemic, but their college career or high school career or, uh, you know, whatever level they're at.
0: Yeah, well, we're excited to be able to talk to you today and um, we're we're definitely going to dig into some topics here that uh, you're passionate about. But before we do that, uh, we want to get to know a little bit about you and your growth in this game, starting with when was it that you wanted to become a football coach?
1: Um, It started my my last year of college, Um, I was... uh, i finished after four years so going in the spring i thought i was going to finish up my degree and become a firefighter or a chef um little to be known to myself i uh, loved being around you know the team the players and whatnot and i found that out when, when i wasn't around those guys anymore so i went into the uh university of oregon football office asked those guys if there was a high school team around that i can go volunteer at which fortunate enough that uh, a guy by the name of Mike Allison hired me at Maris High School uh, to become a DB coach, and then which eventually ended up becoming the co defense coordinator, specialty coordinator. And we went 23 and 1 in two years, won a state title. And I figured coaching was very, very easy, and I'm going to continue to go this route. So,
0: how easy was it for you, coach? Was it something that uh, continued to be as easy as it felt then, or were there
1: obstacles along the way? Oh, once I got into college, I realized it was not that easy. Um, I finished my two years there, and I moved home because my grandpa was going to pass away. So my mom wanted me to come back. And I got home and ended up, um, you know, luckily, he got out of the hospital. And he was okay. And so I, I got back into high school coaching there. But then I was fortunate enough by a guy by the name of Nathan Nagy to call me up and ask me to come coach a secondary for him out in Quincy, Illinois at Quincy University. And um, I got there, I figured, well, I'll be able to recruit the guys I want. And it'd be that much easier, you know, coaching in college, because I'll be getting the people that I want to play for me instead of, you know, just kind of inheriting the, the kids who are around the high school. And and that's where, you know, become a lot more competitive where you're bowing other people for players and facilities and all that stuff start coming into play. But, you know, we did have a, good group of kids there. We battled. We just never were that great as a, as a team. And so that's where I realized that coaching isn't as easy as I thought it was going to be in the format of being able to put together victories. Um, so that that's why I learned it, it wasn't going to be that easy. So,
0: you know, realizing that, figuring that out, what steps did you take to be able to compete? And, uh, you know, you, you, you're at a, a very good FCS school now in Sam Houston State one that is you know nationally uh, is going to be up at the top every single year and so you don't get there um, by accident you have to work so what what were the things you know in learning those lessons that hey this isn't as easy as I thought it was going to be that you started to do to develop and improve yourself
1: well well, the biggest thing is just trying to do your part uh, in this whole uh, elaborate scheme of of an organization and um i was blessed to continue to learn from a lot of people that were around me at at quincy uh sometimes it was learning what not to do a lot of times it was learning what to do and so when you get to that college level that's when sometimes the doors of of other college coaches are going to be more willing to to open up to to help you out uh the biggest thing i've learned is relationships in this business you know if you can keep great great relationships uh with other colleagues uh, that'll move on and they'll connect you with other guys is is what's gonna help you out the most because uh, with you being able to walk in other guys' doors and see what they do, learn what they do and then kind of perfect that craft yourself, it's not only gonna help you as a college coach yourself or high school coach, whatever it may be, a coach in general, it's gonna be able to help your players be able to be successful. And that's the biggest thing is, you know, being as a business you learn that if um, you can get your players a buy-in to buy into what you're teaching them and they can see the success that they have and what you're teaching them, that goes a long ways.
0: And that leads us to one of our main topics today of, about how you get that buy-in in your position room. As I said before, you wear a lot of hats. You're the cornerbacks coach. Uh, you're the coordinator of special teams. You're the defensive pass game coordinator off the field. You're the recruiting coordinator, a lot of responsibility, but for everybody, whether you hold that uh, coordinator title or not, it starts with having a room that's bought in Uh, for you. How do you create that buy-in and uh, what's the philosophy and how do you frame that? So those guys believe in what is going to happen, not just within their position group, but within that unit.
1: Um, I think for, for the most part, what you have to do is always just be yourself, You know, it's it's going to be tough for somebody to see you as one person or one type of personality. And then when you get in the field, you're a completely different type of person. Um, The the biggest thing, I guess, what I've learned uh, from my room to be able to continue to develop is just making sure that I can teach them and then also make them accountable for what they're learning. So, for example, when I, when I look at when we we're scouting teams, I don't – I'm not that coach that I'll just give them all the passing concepts that a team will do because I, I I think a lot of kids don't learn from being able just to look at, you know, the different route com- concepts that you'll get. So one of the little things that I do for my guys is I'll take the top six formations. Uh, a team is um, running, and then from those six formations, they're going to be top six – the top six passing concepts that my guys will have to go in and kind of jot down what those formations are, what those passing concepts are. And so what that does is it allows those guys to kind of learn by watching and writing, and, and they're going to be more likely to remember those things instead of just looking at it on the page. And so as you start to do those little type of things, kids start to grow and they start to have a lot of success from what they're doing. So that little thing there, I think allows those kids to start buying into kind of what you're going to, whatever you're going to pitch to them. And so um, as long as I've been able to make those kids more accountable and want to buy into what I'm teaching, it's allowed for me to kind of develop my room the way I I want it to be developed.
0: Coach within your room, uh, you know, you're going to take that out onto the field and um, you know, you mentioned to me press technique is, is something that uh, you get asked about a lot and like to teach. Talk to us about the technique that you teach when it comes to
1: press. Um, One of our main uh, press techniques that we use is is a quick jam. Um, I advise that only to do that when you have safety help. And so what we do there is we will crowd the line of scrimmage. We will check. With the referee, obviously, once we get down in our, our press stance to make sure we're not offsides or in the neutral zone, and when we're in, our, when we're playing our, our quick jam, you know, we're going to be in our stance where our feet are going to be shoulder width apart, um, knees going to be bent, butts going to be sunk, weight of our shoulders going to be over our knees. Uh, I tell those guys to have sniper vision on where they're jamming. And so when we jam in our quick jam, we jam at the um, guy's leverage chest plate. So if I'm leveraged, if I'm lined up on the right side and I'm leveraged to the left, that means my eyes are going to be on his, the V of his neck. I'm going to be striking with my left hand, you know, my thumb up um, when that V of the neck moves. And so that's one of the triggers that we'll use. I know when I was younger or when I was going through as a player, uh, a lot of what I was taught is to key the key the waistband of the guy, which that's a great, great trigger if you're not going to be using any hands at the line of scrimmage, but being uh, a cornerback in, in press where you're going to be playing quick jam. I like to tell those guys to keep it via the neck because that's where they're going to be striking. That's where they want their hand to be placed when they, when the movement of that via neck goes. Um, so once they strike, they're going to take a six inch, six inch power step with their leverage foot. So again, like I said, from the right corner, I'm leveraged to the left. I'm going to be taking a six six inch power step with my left foot, jammed with my left hand. And so you always want to step and jam whichever leverage side you are. So if you're leveraged to the right, it'd be the opposite. It'd be right foot, uh, six six inch power step and a right-handed jam to the uh, chest plate on his right side. And after that, it just becomes playing football. So the, the whole goal of playing press and being able to quick jam someone to the line of scrimmage to get those guys to change up the pace of their route to where the timing is off. So um, if they're going to speed release, you're probably going to get a jam on them. If they're going to step back, well, now they're not pressing vertical, so that's helping you out as far as that guy getting down the field. And if we can get those guys to either step back or you get hands on them, it um, disrupts that guy's release, which now gives the defensive line and linebackers, if we're seeing pressure, uh, that much more time to get to the quarterback.
0: So what's the, the technique that you teach then? If they do step back, what do you want your guys to do?
1: If they step back, it becomes, like I mentioned, that they're playing football. So they they may end up getting back to a position where they're, uh, they're squared back up, maintaining that leverage of inside. If, for instance, the guy doesn't step back and he speed releases outside, well, your, your hip's already going to be open to where he's speed releasing. So now it's just planting off that. So if I'm leveraged to the right and I step on my left, it's planting off that left foot, getting back in a position where you're in a dominant position uh, of him running his route vertically. Now, when I talk about being dominant, it's not going to be on top of the guy. I, I don't think that's a great position to be on a receiver unless you're in a red zone uh, because of the back shoulder fade. I'd rather that guy be on that near hip In a subtle trail position on that receiver because you can always play up and through any vertical throws and you're in position to take away body presence slides you're in position to take away any any back shoulder fade balls now if you end up getting in a position where he speed releases inside well like i mentioned before we're going to only play this type of technique when we're in a, a single high man defense so if he speed releases inside Again, you may get a hand on him. You're probably going to get a hand on him if you speed release inside, but if you if he steps back and goes inside, well, you're in position now where you want to be on any defender on an inside route or inside releasing route um, with single high coverage. You, you want to be low hip and outside. So it's not like you're putting yourself in a position where it's going to be detrimental to the defense because typically if a guy goes speed release inside, he is going to be pushing vertical running a post or a dig, which he's you'll, you'll be feeding them to your help.
0: You mentioned, you know, being able to take away uh, that back shoulder fade and being in a position to to trail and stay on that backside hip. When your guy gets into that position there, what are some of the coaching cues you give him as far as when he wants to look, when he wants to shoot his hands, et cetera?
1: In man coverage, I've always taught, or for years, I guess I've been teaching guys to – play through the man and so when we are in a position where we have body presence and when i say body presence that means i can feel him with my my shoulder it's not like i'm reaching out to touch the guy because if you're reaching out to touch the guy that means you're there's going to be space between you two and typically what i've always told my guys is, if a guy's pushing vertical do not put hands on the guy once you put hands on the guy when he's pushing vertical that's all you're doing is creating separation which is what him and which is what the receiver and the quarterback wants so you got to work to get your body presence on him and by body presence you're able to feel him drop out of his route you're able to feel him um, try to push push you through and you're able to feel him uh, also open up to that that back shoulder fade so as guys are running down the field vertically With the receiver, coaching point is their eyes need to be on the near shoulder. As they're keying that near shoulder, that near shoulder is going to do two things. It's either going to stay where it's at, and the ball's going to be thrown obviously in front of the receiver, because that's where um, his shoulders are, or that shoulder's going to open up, meaning now that receiver's getting prepared to catch that back shoulder fade. So as that shoulder opens back up uh, for the back shoulder fade, I tell those guys to open with the shoulder. As you open with the shoulder, you're going to play through the body, the hands, back to the ball. And so that puts those guys in position where they stay in body presence on them. And they're not giving up those back shoulder fades um, that you'll typically see. Um, like I was taught when I was younger, which I'm not saying it was wrong, was to open back inside where the ball's coming from or where the ball is. Well, when you open back inside, what ends up happening is that's where you get the back shoulder phase completed. So as you're running downfield, like I mentioned before, if you're keying that near shoulder, the shoulder's going to tell you where the ball is going every single time. It's either going to stay closed, the ball's being thrown in front of the guy, or it's going to open up and it's going to be thrown in the back shoulder. And you open up with it, you're going to be able to play through the back shoulder throw.
0: Coach, thanks for sharing those techniques. And you move moving on here to another part of your job, uh, you have three – Titles of coordinator, uh, we'll set aside the one that's that's done off the field as the recruiting coordinator, uh, but uh, a lot on your plate as far as being the special teams coordinator and the defensive pass game coordinator. So from just a pure workflow perspective, how are you able to handle that and all the game planning that's going to go into really uh, you know two phases of the game?
1: Well, with special teams, I've been blessed to not only have the staff. You know, our position coaches to help out and coach a position. I mean, uh, I went to the head coach, uh, I want to say last year or so, or last spring or so, and I told him that I wanted to have just a special teams um, coaching staff. No different than you have an offensive, defensive staff. So there are five coaches that coach positions that that's all they do outside of coaching. Their position is also coach a position or two on special teams. Which helps out me because it allows me now to oversee, you know, everything in regards to special teams instead of me trying to coach, you know, these two guys, and then also see what's going on with big picture. I'm able to look at big picture and have, you know, those five guys that, that work with me coach, you know, two guys in those on on each of the four four main phases of what we do special teams wise, and so, you know, we'll meet and we'll talk about um, things we need to change things things we need to to do to help us out in special teams. Um, And and that's been wonderful in regards to being able to coordinate on on special teams. I know some guys, you know, it becomes overwhelming because they're doing it all. I mean, you know, you have coaches there, but it's not really like a buy-in of, okay, I'm on kickoff and I got these two guys and I'm buying into, you know, kind of what we do on special teams. And I think along with that is, You know, we grade special teams uh, in spring and fall camp, uh, along obviously with the season. But the biggest thing is grading it in spring and fall camp every single day. So uh, I have an intern who does a great job as far as helping me stay organized with special teams, and he helps out with a lot of the game planning. Um, Zach Mullet he helps out a lot of the game planning that we do with special teams. So uh, I really have six guys that are uh, working with me in special teams that helps us stay organized in regards to game planning. But uh, me and Zach will do most of the game planning during the season. But, again, it's the biggest thing I think you do is if, if you're grading those guys in fall camp and in spring ball and you keep them accountable for their grades, so we'll announce every meeting like, hey, these are the top three guys of yesterday's practice. These are bottom, however many guys it may be. Which we call we call those guys bottom feeders. So, and the bottom feeder thing is like you should know, like a um, it was like a cartfish is that they they're the ones who feeding off of the success of everyone else. And so we point those guys out, and we're not we're not afraid to call those guys out. So, guys have really bought into kind of what we do on special teams, and obviously the ones who are the top tier guys that uh, we do what we do for those guys to make sure the rest of the team understands that what they're doing is his special in regards to special teams. Um, but but that's the biggest thing is being able to have guys that work with you that are bought into what you're doing special team wise and know if they have a, a word and a say in and um and what we're doing as far as on the field especially no different in offense and defense. And I think that was a big part of why we are Number twelve in the country, or yeah, number twelve in the country, in special teams last year. If you look at it statistically overall.
0: So I'm interested in the other coordinator position that you have on the field, the defensive pass game coordinator. I've certainly had quite a few pass game coordinators here from the offensive side of the ball. I want to say you might be the first uh, on the podcast that's been specifically with that title, a defensive pass game coordinator. Um, what things do you look at in putting together the game plan? What falls on your plate? as far as the responsibilities of uh, the defensive passing game?
1: Um, this is crazy. Um, it's funny that the head coach came to the office. Uh, I don't know if it was fall or last spring. And he's like, I'm going to name you defensive pass game coordinator. And I sat there and I thought like, okay, well, what, what is this going to you know, entail? Like what, what different am I going to do? And, as a defensive back coach, I don't think it's it hasn't been any different for me as far as how I prepared uh, or helped our staff prepare for a game or even myself or my room prepare for a game. It's it's just understanding kind of what the team you're facing offensively what they're going to do, you know. So a big part of what I do um, as just as a defensive back coach has been uh, figuring out when um, the offense likes to run their screens what type of screens they run, you know, what do they like to do in the red zone? What kind of concepts they like to do in the red zone? Um, Understanding who the receivers are that we need to uh, be aware of um, and just understand the big part of just the whole passing game. Are they RPO team? Are they a drop back team? Are they going to move the pocket uh, on third down? Um, what type of passing concepts are they going to try and get to when it's third and long, you know? And so, and I think all those things, a defensive back coach, most defensive back coaches already do. So I was given the title and I kind of sat there I was like, well, what am I going to do any different? And I, I sat, really sat there. I was like, there's nothing really. I, I think I can do different outside of what I already do. And I, I spoke to a couple guys that I know that are essentially defensive passing coordinators for their uh, programs and, they were kind of like, Gary, I mean, you probably already do everything that, that you do. You're just now given, given a title. But um, I guess a, a, another part of it, though, is kind of what I do in my job, though, is, you know, when we're, out, we're doing scout cards, I'm the guy who's picking the pass concept that we're going to see as a team. You know, so what I do is I, I look at what the uh, opponents are doing, and I say, OK, well, first single high, these are the concepts they like. These are the concepts that are gonna give us give us trouble. You know, so I'm not putting in like four verts based on what we do defensively. I mean I'm not putting in four verts in there during practice. It's that's a simple concept. It's more of uh because we're a man single high man defense, it's more of okay, they like to cut the splits of these guys and run, you know, these types of cut split formations um so if they are willing in the back with the x on the back side with the cut split we need to see that our backer needs to see that because he's going to get picked if he doesn't see that if you know if they're running bunch concepts and there's some concepts in there where you know we may have not ever seen them those are types of things that i'm putting in practice i'm not putting in you know vanilla things i'm putting in concepts that are going to give us you know some problems and hopefully we come from practice Come throughout practice, or come out of practice, and our players feel more comfortable with, you know, whatever defensive concepts that we're running versus, you know, the bunch or the two-man stuff where they got stacked formations, cut close to the formation, um, the base of the formation, all that stuff. So, um, I mean, I guess that's the biggest part, you know, is, is understanding the passing game, and then understanding what would be the best coverages going into um, an opponent. So our, our defensive coordinator, Coach Carl, asked me, he's like, okay, what coverage do you, do you think are going to be the best ones for us to run? Because we're not going to run an entire playbook when we go against a team. We're going to pick what we think works best. And as we go throughout the game, if there's adjustments we have to make or things we have to do, we'll make those adjustments. But hopefully, you know, by, by Tuesday or Wednesday, you know, what we put together is going to work. And I, I think for the most part, especially this last year, you know, we defensively did a hell of a job with preparing our kids. Our kids bought into, you know, what we're selling them, and, and they did a fantastic job performing on the field for us.
0: So, coach, in being primarily a one-high uh, man team, you know that's one of the first things you heard as people started to come up with answers for the RPO. That uh, oh, you know, one-high man can stop it. Um, obviously, they're still running RPO, so. <laughs> With that in mind, you know what are some of the things that you see uh, commonly that teams are trying to do for you, and, and what are the keys to still being able to, to stop those RPO teams in the defense you're playing?
1: Um, what teams have done to us uh, the last couple of years is they'll, they'll do some movement as far as motion. Um, so when you get in one hide, they're going to try and move guys and find matchups. Uh, and I'll tell you, and I hate saying this, but we've been blessed because we've had a really good secondary in the last couple of years. And also with a really good defensive line that doesn't allow the quarterback to hold the ball much. But we've been able to handle those matchups when we got our guys in there. And so, but what I've seen though is, is movement. I've seen uh, formational things where they'll get in bunch, they'll get in two-on-two stuff where they try to trick trick our trick our guys regards to who's coming in, who's going out, um, quarterback run game has been a big part of what teams tried to do uh, and what they will do versus single high defense and force that safety to make a play now on a quarterback in space or even put an edge player, be a defensive end or a linebacker, you know, in space uh, or even in a predicament where he has to be worried about the jump cut, of the running back or the quarterback pulling. And so that those are things you got to be kind of aware of when you're running that single-high defense. Um, now, things that we've done is we've added coverage, not to get into too much detail, but we've added coverages where it's uh, manipulation of man and zone um, on uh, versus our opponent to where we're not just straight and, and man-to-man coverage all the time. So we'll, we'll manipulate it where we'll man up somebody and, and play zone around it. So that helps out when you when you can figure out who their guy is in the passing game off RPO.
0: I know uh, you know a lot of times now and you've seen it more and more um, people moving into the bunch, right? Uh, bunch formations, whether that's three by one with that kind of tight uh, trips formation, or two by two where they're snugged and you still have a lot of space to the outside. Um, try to utilize that to really get you to play a little bit more vanilla in coverage or get into zone coverage. I know, you know, back when we would use those, uh, that I could count on standard, you know, getting covered two on some of that two by two and getting teams out of maybe man, unless, you know, I didn't see a lot of teams who would banjo, but, um, with those formations, what do you feel is the best way to, to handle that when teams are trying to do that to you?
1: Um, it depends on your personnel defensively. I mean, uh, again we've been blessed with not only being in texas but you know texas high school football players are pretty smart players and they've been coached up pretty well for the most part and, and they're pretty athletic and so and i think that's been the benefit of us is where we are and we're located is we've been able to get those guys who are athletic enough to still play man and so uh one way to attack it is to continue to play man And you run you know if it's a bunch like three-man bunch you're running. Three, what we call three-on-three three concepts where we will in and out, you know, two of the guys and play man on one of them or we'll we'll go all the way across where it's uh, like a three-way, you know, so a guy will have first out, guy will have first in and then another guy will have second declare, And so we, we have several of those different concepts that we run in man. And then if you don't have the guys who can run with those guys, and man-to-man coverage, especially fighting through getting rubbed, then then you do check to a zone concept where it's it's some sort of three concept where you got, you know, a zone guy inside, a zone guy outside, and a zone guy over the top. And so what you have to understand is if you're getting into that zone stuff is they're probably going to run a lot of follow routes. And so now you're getting two, two receivers – on one zone guy or you're getting uh you call that spacing concept if you're in cover three. So now you're getting again, you're getting three guys on two underneath defenders. You're getting outmatched in your zones. And then if you're gonna stay with man, you've got to realize that there is a possibility at one point in time you may get rubbed off, you know, based on the concept that they may run. And so it kinda just depends on your personnel and your and kinda how you wanna attack it as a as a coordinator or a defensive back coach, I don't think one is better than the other, you know, a good mixture of it. And that'll happen throughout games is cause you're not going to we call ourselves a single high man defense, but we will not play man a hundred percent of the time. You know, we'll probably play man 60% of the time and try and do a good job of mixing in some zone to make sure that quarterback is really having to think about what we're doing. We try and make it look like man um, for the most part. And so he's not figuring it out until post snap, and he has to go through a read progression.
0: So it, you've seen a lot uh, the last couple of years, really, of a lot of the mesh, and those turn into some picks. For you in playing man coverage, what's the key to not being uh, picked or, or rubbed off of a route?
1: Um, what I will teach our guys in a man concept defense where we're not because we'll run a man-concept defense where we pass stuff off. But if, you, if you're running a man-concept defense where you're not passing things off, um, what I've taught defensive backs are when you're getting mesh is to trail the receiver. Because typically what you're going to do is uh, if you get it, try to work to a position where you're running side-by-side by, side by them, then that's when you're going to get picked. But once you feel mesh – and obviously you're going into, your, you're going to know, you go, Hey, they run mesh versus man. And so once you fill that route, start pushing to the sideline. I always tell my guys, if you can see the guy's butt crack, or you can see the back of his numbers he's running mesh
0: If you can, if he's
1: running at you and you can, you can still see the front of him. That means he's going to be running the climbing route. So don't worry about, you know, getting behind him when he's running across the field. So that will help those guys not get, picked by one of their teammates or by the other receiver and then as they work through the mesh and they'll start working back to the top or the upfield shoulder of the receiver
0: coach your guys obviously have to tackle and in corners these days have to be more and more physical in that aspect of uh, the defense what are some of the key coaching points in the situations that your guys end up in the most
1: First thing I'm going to say, and this is kind of off the question, but when I walk into a uh, high school or sit in the living room, I tell my guy, I tell those guys that I'm recruiting, I don't believe in cover guys. So I'll, I'll walk into a high school and the coach is like, Oh, he's a great cover, he's a cover corner. And my like, coach, I don't want him in. I, I don't want to coach cover corners. Those guys don't exist anymore, and, and it's because offense do such a great job of going to single width formations, and if you're not a team that travels your corners, which we're not a team that travel our corners, so our corners end up becoming essentially outside linebackers, or nickels or whatnot to a tight end formation. And so, one of the things I get into is making sure every corner that, and I coach nickels too, but every corner that comes into our organization knows that they will not just be responsible for covering somebody down the field they're going to be responsible for taking on blocks in the box. They're going to be responsible for blitzing off the edge. So they got to understand that mentality of just, oh, I'm just, I'm a cover corner. I'm going to go cover that guy. And that's all I got to do all day. It's not going to exist because of how the game is played nowadays. There's there's so many plays that offenses do now that they try to either get the corner in the box by motioning or just getting the ball out in space to force those guys to have to tackle. And so, to get them out of that mentality of just being a cover corner, if they happen to sneak into our program, is you got to do tackling every day, and and we do tackling as far as individ- individual every single day, and it's it's challenging those guys to to be tough and understand that the the shoulder pads on them are there to protect them, and obviously they got to keep their head on to protect themselves, and and so I think that's a big part of. Um, Creating defensive backs or corners that are not just cover corners. And I don't know if I answered that question right or for you.
0: Yeah, no, I mean definitely the mentality, right? It, it's it's uh, listening to you. It's it's like listening to a receiver coach, you know, talking about you know making sure that his guys understand they're going to be blocking, right? You you need your guys to be physical. Um, with with that in mind, you know, I think when we look at any position, I've seen more and more guys just get out of the used to be. You, you watch a defensive practice. Uh, five, ten years ago, it was a tackling circuit. And it's the same drills every single day, uh, but I've seen it become a lot more refined. And here's the limited situations we're going to have you guys in, and here's how we're going to approach it for you. What are the the kind of the key situations that you want to make sure uh, you're working all the time because they're going to happen again and again?
1: Um, well, for the most part, I mean, I, I'd say eighty percent of the time we have to make tackles is going to be in space. And so a lot of drills that we do are going to be focused on guys going from a long stride to a short stride in space and being able to come to balance and leverage a ball carrier. So a lot of drills that that we do are focused on those guys being able to see a ball carrier in space, being able to make sure they leverage them the proper way and attack that near hip. Um, The biggest thing for me that I teach my guys is, you know, their near leg needs to be their lead leg. So if I'm the defensive back approaching a ball carrier from um, my right, his left, my left foot's going to be up, my right foot's going to be slightly back. I learned this a while back, and I am a California guy, so uh, we've called that a surf technique. Um, and So as they approach that guy, they're surfing, they're coming, going from a long strike to a short strike, making sure that the framework of their feet don't get too wide, where – they either get juked or, or out leveraged. And um, also with them having their lead leg up, their inside leg up, their outside leg slightly back, their hips are open to where if they do happen to lose leverage, they're they're not closed off to where they can't um, open their hips up and, and maintain that leverage again or, or regain that leverage, I should say.
0: Coach, you've shared a lot of great stuff with us here today. And uh, the last question that I ask everybody is, you know, of all the things you do as a coach on and off the field, what's the one thing you point to that really gives your guys the winning edge?
1: Um, Good question. I mean, I, I think it's probably more so, and this is outside of, you know, preparation Um, Obviously, that's going to be what what helps those guys out the most is uh, making sure, like I mentioned before, having those guys be more so accountable for what you're game planning than you being accountable for, you know, you game planning for them. You know, like every good coach, I think, is going to do their damnest to make sure their kids are prepared and gather all this information. But if you're the one gathering all the information as a coach, you're going to obviously learn and know, but those kids – Young kids, ones who aren't seasoned, uh, are not going to understand what to do or how to, how to handle that information. But I think that the things that you do with your players off the field hold um, a lot more weight than what you do with those guys on the field. Because if you're a good coach, you're going to coach them on the field. But if you're able to get those guys – to your house. You're able to bond with those guys. You're able to share your own stories with those guys, to where um, they can see that you've gone through it. Because a lot of times these kids, you know, I'm 41 years old, and so it's funny my wife was calling us old earlier, and I, I don't think I'm old, but you know, you, you're coaching these kids who are 18, and 19, 21, 22 years old. There could be some disconnect, and you just feeding them information. But if you're not creating any type of relationship with those guys, to where they, they they can really trust you and understand that you're there for them then their their growth is going to be limited I think because they may only listen to half of what you're saying and you don't want that you want them to be able to listen and, and really hang off the cliff on, on every single word that comes out of your mouth because as you as a coach you feel that what, what you're telling them is what's going to work and since you've been doing it for a while you've had some success and you've seen it I mean you know, for yourself as a coach that, you know, it's, it's going to work if they listen to you. And so I think if, if guys can can learn to create great relationships with their players off the field, those guys are going to be more willing to hang on every single word that comes out of their mouth when they say to them on the field. And so those are things that I've done in the last several years that I've been a coach and, um, I think it's helped. I'd like to believe it's helped. You know, especially when you have kids uh, send you messages about how you affect their life in such a positive way. And, um, it's not only like the good players, but it's like the walk-on players that maybe they weren't good enough to play at the Division One level, D two, D three, and they've grown to become accountable players within your program. And so, it's probably not what coaches wanted to hear but i really do truly believe that's something that has carried a lot of weight in regards to my position rooms that i've coached to be successful is we've had a really good bond off the field and they understand that you know when we get between the lines it's business and and they're willing to listen to willing to listen to buy in and, and like i said jump off that cliff for you when they're on the field competing with their other teammates
0: Coaches, you can follow Coach McGraw on Twitter at DBCoachMcGraw. Coach, I know you are the recruiting coordinator, but what's your primary recruiting area?
1: Uh, my primary recruiting area is uh, southwest Houston, um, but I recruit the entire state of Texas for defensive backs. So
0: so if you have a good one, send them Coach's way. Coach, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, it was great to, to have you here on the podcast and best of luck to you and the Bearcats in 2021. I appreciate it, Keith. Thank you for listening to the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. Be sure to get your ticket to Lawrence First and Goal Coaches Clinic at lfgf.coachesclinic.com. Remember to save money by getting the early bird ticket $49 for the individual $150 for the staff and it supports a great car. Follow me on Twitter, at okay
1: for and find our show notes, articles, and more of our head coach, and more.